hidden, quiet, been able to operate without any responsibility. If I'm being honest with you today, friendship, I don't really like anonymous. When, when, I, when I think about anonymous, I think about those reporters that they, they, they make a report and they say uh, unnamed source. When I think about anonymous, I think about people that create these fake accounts on social media and they begin to make comments and say things they would not otherwise say if you had to put their face or their name on it. Anonymous. I, I, I don't like to operate and people come up to me and they say, well, they said and they did and they might. And then I ask the question, well, who is they? And they don't say anything. Well, we don't have anything to talk about because I don't really like to deal with anonymous. So, so when I look at the word of God, I want you to understand if I look with my natural eye, I almost see a problem because we see him saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Them, they. Here we have Christ right now is experiencing the pain that someone has done something directly to him. But what he does in response is he says, Father, forgive them. And he gives them the privilege of being anonymous. He says they don't know what it is that they do. I want you to understand that this Jesus that we serve, he's quite the marvel. When we look at Jesus, he is the son of God. He is the only begotten of God. He is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He is a dear anthropological miracle. When I think about God, he is the perfect blend between that which is divine and that which is human, which means that his divinity is never diminished, nor is his humanity never diluted. He was man enough to walk around us, but he is also God enough to die for us. But when we find him there at Calvary, we find him at his most human moment. It is there at Calvary that we find him there in this human frailty, and he teaches us the divine lesson of how to forgive the anonymous. Now, where this gets really interesting is when we ask the question, who is the anonymous? Who is them? Who are they? When I think about it, I would say that them are those that hate him, that desire to hurt him. When I think about Jesus, Jesus was a person that had achieved great stature. And you don't achieve that type of popularity without being somewhat polarizing. Yeah. Jesus had aligned himself with those that were marginalized and oppressed. And oftentimes he found himself on the other side of the fence from those that were of the empire, those that were of the religious hierarchy. And he spoke to that with divine authority. He spoke to it with truth, and he was truth. And because of that, people adored him. But at the same time, people hated him. At Calvary, the Roman Empire and the religious hierarchy had Jesus right where they wanted him. They were nailing him to that accursed tree. It was at Calvary that Jesus is starting to feel the pain of those that hated him. But what we find our Savior do, he says, Father, forgive them. He gives them the privilege of being anonymous. He didn't call out Pontius Pilate. He didn't call out the crowd that said, give us Barabbas. He didn't call out the knowing soldiers that nailed the spikes in his hands. He didn't call out that crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. He said, Father, Forgive them, yeah. 
but they know not what they do. He gave them the privilege of being anonymous. Who is them? Who are they? Them are those that hated him, that hurt him, but them are also those that loved him and left him. Oh, it's a horrible thing to be attacked. But the worst thing is not to hear the voice of your enemies. The worst thing is the silence of your friends. And it was there at the cross that that silence was deafening. Here it is, we have Jesus that poured out the essence of who he was. Miracles that he performed, needs that he had met, lives that had been changed. Here he is dangling between heaven and eternity, but yet and still those that said they loved him have left him. All of his disciples are gone except for John. All of his family is gone except for his mother. And we find Jesus all alone in his worst moment. But what does Jesus do? He says, Father, forgive them. And he gives them the privilege of being anonymous. Who is them? Who are they? Those that hate and hurt Jesus. Those that loved and left Jesus. But there's another category. Those that did not know Jesus, but would need Jesus. When we think about the divinity of God, he's not just in the present, but he has a clear understanding of what's to come in the future. So when he is being crucified, he understands that it's not this historical time frame. But when Jesus dies, he understands that the salvation would not just be for today, but for eternity. When Jesus died, he died for those who had not yet known him, but he knew that they would eventually need him. When Jesus comes, he sacrifices and he makes the final payment of sin because those that had not yet been born will have the right to be born again. When I look at it, we have to understand that that's why nobody could take his life. He laid down his life of his own free will and volition. So it's in that moment he is thinking about those, and we have to think to ourselves, if Christ is thinking about those to come, then all of a sudden, them is not them, them is us. Them is us. Let us not be so high-minded that we cannot put up the mirror of our life and begin to reflect and understand where we sit. Because I want you to know that we have all denied God. We have all betrayed God. We have all disregarded his grace and his goodness to some capacity. And now we find Jesus dangling between humanity and divinity, dangling between time and eternity, and he is thinking about us. But what does he do? He says, for God, Father, forgive them and gave us the privilege of anonymity. I know I got to move to my clothes, but the thing that we have to realize here is it is not a coincidence that as we go through these sayings of the cross, that the first thing that we find our Savior uttering is, Father, forgive them. It's not a coincidence that he's saying, Father, forgive them, and he's looking beyond their faults. He's seeing their need, and he's giving forgiveness to people that didn't even ask for it. It's not a coincidence that we find Jesus in his human frailty with his entrails hanging from his body with blood and spit and dirt. And we find him there and the first thing that comes to his mind is, Father, forgive them. And there's something that can help us right now. When we look at this, there's a divine lesson for anybody that has an assignment, we have to be able to forgive. 
I want you to understand it's not a coincidence that he was able to do it because it's very hard to hold on to the burdens of the world and to hold on to unforgiveness at the same time. It's very hard to bear the sins that you've been assigned to seal and to cover and to hold on against a grudge. You have to let those things go. So what Jesus says for us that have an assignment, in order for you to maintain that assignment, you have to let some things go. We have some people that are holding on to things and people, some stuff that people did to them way back in 1985, and you're holding on to this anger, this bitterness, this unforgiveness, and you're doing that with people that have probably forgotten you even exist. You think that you are not letting them free and you're binding them, but you're only binding yourself because you can't truly grab hold of what God has for you if you're still holding on to grudges and unforgiveness over here. So you have to let those things go. If you want to achieve your fullness in Christ, if you want to be able to walk and find the full fruition of what God is trying to do, the first thing you not do is look at some help, self-help book. The first thing you not do is get your tie and your articulation to death. The first thing you need to do is pull up the mirror and ask yourself, who is it that I need to forgive? Who is it that I need to let go? And all I want you to know that the blessing is because Jesus forgave. He had the strength to say six more words than my brothers are going to preach tonight because Jesus forgave. He had the power to die on Friday, but more importantly, he had the ability to raise up on Sunday because Jesus forgave. He gives us the ability and the power to do the same thing ourselves. Now, if we would just say that our purpose is bigger than our pain and let those things go, God can do a miraculous work. So I encourage you to lift up those forgiving hands and open that forgiving mouth and thank the Lord because we can get it right today. May the Lord have a blessing upon the hearers and doers of his holy word. Amen. God be the glory. Amen. Give God a hand clap of praise again for that word that bastard uh, minister G just preached. Amen. I have the assignment to talk about the second saying, which comes out of Luke 23, 39, 43. Shall we pray? Eternal God, in the name of Jesus, we come to lift you up tonight to give you glory, to give you honor. As our failed attempt to duplicate the words that you said on Calvary, God, Give us the strength, the knowledge, and the wisdom to speak how only you want us to speak, God, that you may be glorified. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak unto me, speak through me. Father, I need you at this very hour, God, to touch me, O oh God, anoint me, O oh God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto thee. Father, I give you glory, I give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture I want to read to you is Luke 23, 39, and 43. And it says, and one of the male factors, yours may say criminal, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself. But the other one answering rebuked him, saying, doest not thou fear God, seeing that thou in, in the same condemnation? And we indeed justify, we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when I comest into thy kingdom. 
And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto do, Today, not tomorrow, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amen. This particular text, as I looked at it in opening, I thought about it because I noticed in this particular saying, this was the only saying that Jesus actually had a conversation and a dialogue with somebody at the cross of Calvary. He spoke to a lot of people that was not on the, but, but was in the audience, but he spoke to two thieves that hanged on a cross at Calvary. I want to call it as if I want to try to put a topic on it. I would say that a request was asked and an acquittal was the answer. I said a request was asked and an acquittal was the answer. Now let me see if I can paint the picture right quick, but I don't have but nine minutes. You have three men on the cross with three different circumstances and three different situations. We have two criminals, thieves that have been found guilty by their superiors of crimes that they had committed against society. And their sentence was death by crucifixion. Now let me just say a little bit about crucifixion was one of the most hindrous and ways to kill a man in that society. The Romans used that as to kill thieves and people that had done heinous crimes. And what they would do, they would nail them to a cross. And they would, they would die not from the cross, but they would die from exhaustion and asphyxiation, meaning they would suffocate on the cross of Calvary. But the circumstances and situations did not place Jesus at this scene like the thieves. Their circumstance was because of their crimes. But Jesus' circumstance was divine purpose and love that allowed him to be placed at Calvary. So, but let me, just, let, me, let me deal with death for a minute before I keep going because death was here also at Calvary. Death was on standby. Death had an assignment from Jesus. You know, he was fully God and fully man at the same time, so death had to wait until Christ gave the instructions. So death never could move. So that lets us know death was not in authoritative at the cross of Calvary because our Savior still had our power and our authority to call death when he got side. But let's look at the dialogue and the conversation. I said a request was asked by one of the thieves and an acquittal was given by the Savior. But I noticed in the conversation and the dialogue, I began to look at it and found out that both thieves knew something about Jesus, the Messiah. Both of them, even though the life they lived ungodly outside of the will of God, I found out that both these knew something about the Savior. Either they heard it while they was doing robbery and killing, because you know Jesus was famous in those times. So it's hard to believe for me not to see and think that they knew something about the Savior. But what really blessed me is the criminals, the two thieves. Everything that they did, the robbery, the murders, and the boundaries, and all of that, that placed them to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. At the end of their life, they would encounter the Messiah, the one they had heard about. Even though they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, they had heard about Jesus. They had heard something about the Messiah. Probably they had heard he was, had raised someone from the dead. Or maybe he had healed the sick. 
but some kind of way when they see the questions that they oppose, you're going to understand that they knew something about Jesus. Look at the thief on the left. I call him the unrepentant thief. The unrepentant thief was on the left. And his question to Jesus was, if thou be Christ, save yourself. How could he have known that that was Christ? Why he couldn't have said that that was maybe Elijah, either Moses or the Jeremiah? That lets me know he knew something about him to be able to address him as the Christ. He said, if you be the Christ, save yourself and me. But Jesus never, ever answered him. If we look at the text, he never answered the thief. So that indicates to me the thief knew something about him, but yet the only thing he knew was in his dying hour, he had an encounter with the Messiah. But the only thing he could imagine to say was, save me. He was talking to the Savior that could save him. But I'm looking at the thief, the first thief, and it amazed me. Because all of that he did, his life ended up at the end facing the Messiah. So it lets me know no matter what we do in life, when our life comes to a closing end, we may have an opportunity to meet the Messiah. And I know a lot of times we say, well, that person didn't live in the church and he didn't do this and he didn't do that. But yet sometimes our life, when it ends, gives us an opportunity like the thief to have an encounter with the Messiah. So that lets me know right there that Jesus forgives no matter what you are, who you are, or what situation you may be in. But let's look at the second thief and I'm going to hurry on. Because i got seven minutes. I want to be obedient to my pastor. The second thief, I called him the good thief. I called the second thief the good thief. See, what he heard about the Messiah, he began to believe and come apart of. What he heard about Jesus, he began to believe it and come apart of it while he hung on the cross of Calvary. Because if you notice that, he told his friend, that don't you fear God, seeing that we have done nothing, but yet he have done anything? He knew that that was God. But watch this here. He said, have you fear of God? He's talking to the first thief. He's rebuking him for asking the equivalent, the question that he asked to Jesus by insulting our Savior. He insulted him, but what, what blew me away was that they were buddies together. Now, all of a sudden, he's rebuking him. He's rebuking him for what he said to the Savior. He said this, watch this. He said that, have you no fear in God? He rebuked him. We're getting what we just. He said, we deserve what we do. But this man has done no right. That lets me know right there that he was really confessing and coming into repentance at that very time because he understood who the Savior was. The encounter he was having with Jesus, he understood that he was the Messiah. But watch this. The request he said is unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How would he have known Jesus had a kingdom? if he had not heard about the Messiah. See, it's something when you hear about Jesus 
And it's something else when you know about him. But it's something when you have a personal relationship with him. But he didn't have a personal relationship with him. He just knew about Jesus. But his encounter on Calvary allowed him to meet the Messiah at his death ending. Now, isn't that amazing? The life that they live ungodly, away from God? You're going to have some people that you know right now, of people you know, that don't live for God, outside the will of God. But baby, all they have to do is repent and confess, and they can get into the kingdom. And I know what you're saying. Well, I did this, I did that. It don't make any difference. God is not the respect of man or people. But I like that was the quest he said unto Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But I like the acquittal. Because Jesus said, truly I say unto you. Verily, verily I say unto you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was answering, he was answering and saying, the truth and the importance is what would follow. So what you just asked, it's already done. Jesus knew that he would be in paradise the very day, and the thief would be with him. My God. Two thieves that had an encounter with our Lord and Savior at the cross of Calvary. But yet one thief came into repentance. The, the first thief didn't. But it amazes me how God loves us all. He gives us all the opportunity to come unto him. No matter what you are, no matter how you sinned, no matter what you said, if you can do like the thief said, if you can just say what he said, Father, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In closing, I want to just say this here. In the final moments of our lives, we can be forgiven by our Savior. The entrance into the kingdom of God presence is not by our works, our righteousness. It's a free gift from God. From faith and believing who God is or gets you in the kingdom. Not by your works, not by your deeds, not by your church attendance. The thief is a prime example to us that you can get into the kingdom of God by just refresh, confessing, believing, even in your dying hour, on your dying deathbed, you can be saved by the Savior. Give God a hand clap of praise. He's worthy. I want to say in the time frame, to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. What a word. Protocol has been established. I want to call your attention to the third saying. It's found in the gospel according to John, 19th chapter, beginning with the 26th verse and ending with the 27th. Where the God reads as follows. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and, his, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his home. Behold your mother. You may be seated. Mother, behold your son. We find ourselves on a battlefield between Satan and God that is part of a war that has begun in eternal past, begin in heaven when Satan rose up against God and wanted to take charge. God expelled Satan from heaven along with a third of the angels and Satan makes earth his home. Satan is not here on earth making it his own, but God decided to create man and he gives man dominion over earth. Satan attacks men because of the absence of Adam by twisting God's word to Eve. Sin enters the world because Eve and Adam eats of the forbidden fruit. The curse that is prophesied this moment of time that we uh, just read about is spoken. And I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And between the serpent's seeds and the woman's seed. The, serpent, the woman's seed shall bruise thy head, a mortal crush. Jesus triumphs. The serpent seed shall bruise thy heel. Jesus is suffering on the cross. During this war, Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies about him. He has healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons. He's taught disciples, teachers, and the church. Uh, uh, God has acknowledged Jesus as his son at least twice. John the Baptist and, 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 and Peter has acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Jesus uh, has discussed his death on the mountain of transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. A lot has transpired. Mm -mm. Uh, uh, Jesus, getting close to the cross, enters Jerusalem for Passover, and a crowd welcomes him. Hosanna! Hosanna! Uh -huh. Jesus discusses his death with the disciples. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. And they whip Jesus, nailed him to the cross. Which was cruel because in those days, they, they tied you to the cross. If they nailed you, it was cruelty because that's not how you died. You died because of 9.81 meters per second square of gravity pulling down on your lungs, filling up with fluid. Mm. Hunger between two thieves. One thief marched them. The other says a prayer. And I look out, there's a crowd. There's a large crowd. A crowd that surely must have a different view of the scene on Calvary. 
Surely the cavalry scene would have differed from person to person. Surely there was some that was just there for a historical moment. Maybe there was some that was there just to mark him. Can you hear the laughter? Can you hear the, the talking to him about Jesus? Can you feel the stairs? Crawl the stick. But not only that, there are those that shed tears. But as I look out in the crowd, Everybody is in the crowd. Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes are at the cross. Political figures are at the cross. Roman soldiers are at the cross. The rich, the poor, the young, the old, the women, and the men, along with their different situation, their different heartaches, their different situation, they are at the cross, crest on the floor. Are you at the cross? Are you before Jesus? Are you willing to be in the midst of the crowd to go before the cross? Ah, but that's something I don't see. That's the reason why I ask this. Because I don't see Andre. I don't see James and Philip and Bartholomew, nor do I see Matthew or Dalton Thomas. I don't see James and Simon and Judah. And, Judah. and Judas has already committed suicide. Surely Peter's there. Surely the one that said, I die for you is there. The one that said, thou art the Christ, just like you said, you are my Savior. Surely he's there. Oh, but Peter's nowhere to be found. Are you? At the cross? Hmm. Look at my Jesus on the cross. Nailed to the cross. Suffocating. And my Jesus in the midst of all this, look at the crowd. And he sees the disciple whom he loved, John. And he sees his mother's Mary. And he calls out to him. Point number one, he sees you. No matter how loud the crowd is, no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how ugly it may get, no matter how heavy your heart may be, he sees you. Not only do he see you, but he sees you just where you are. You're not too short. Your situation not too small. It's not too hard for him. I don't know what you're going to, I don't know who I'm talking to, but God sees you. There's no place that my Savior, that my Lord will not go and get his sheep. Boy, you're at the cross because he sees you. Mm. And he sees you just where you are. Know that you're not alone. He, he sees those midnight tears. He hears the cries in the midnight. He sees your faithfulness. What you are doing for the Lord is not in vain. But you cannot work your way into heaven. Let's get that straight. But it's not in vain. He sees you. Brothers and sisters, be of good cheer. Because whatever you're going through, Jesus sees you. But not only does he see you, but he knows your heart. Ah, he know why you're here. He know why you're at the cross. He knows your motive. He knows where you are. 
He knows what you are going through. He knows what you did. He knows what you contribute to the situation. Why are you at the cross? Is it because of legalistic reason? You want to follow the Ten Commandments? Why are you at the cross? Is it because Big Mama done it? Why are you at the cross? Is it because the doors are open and you want to be there because of such and such? Or is it because you love Jesus? He knows your motives. Not only does he knows where you are and what you're going through, not only does he knows your motives at being at the cross, but point number three, he would give you what you stand in need of. Mother, behold thy son. He could have easily said, behold my little brother. He could have easily said, behold the Roman, the Roman soldiers. But he said, behold my son. And he looks out, he sees the disciple in whom he loves, and he entrusts Mary and John with one another. Two people that love Jesus deeply, two people that follow Jesus' teaching, two people that will be bold enough to come to the cross. There's no one else at the cross following Jesus' teaching, no other disciple at the cross following Jesus' teaching but John, and he entrusted John, Mary with John. Nothing you're going through that he's not going to leave you prepared to handle the situation as I go to my seat, whatever you're going through. Know that God is enough. What? Whatever you're going through, know that he is faithful and just. And whatever you are going through, he said he'll never leave you, although my heart may be heavy. He will never leave you, although this may be messed up. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. So my brothers and sisters, smile in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of your crawl. Smile. When things are messed up, when your money is funny, smile. When, when, when it's messed up in your household, smile. When, when it's messed up at your job, smile. When it's messed up in your ministry, smile. When you smile. Why? Because we have the victory. And today is the day that the Lord has made, and we shall be glad in it. Amen.
my passage is Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. And it reads like this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lava sabatine, that this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My title is Sin Calls. Sin is costly. You know, it is through scripture that we learn what the cost is. That Jesus hanging on the cross between two seeds. You know, it's through scripture we should get a deeper conviction of the evils of sin. What we owe to Christ who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's put this passage in context. The light of the world, he who knows no sin, is hanging on a cross between two seeds. God's only Son, the sovereign Lord of all beings, is hanging on the cross between two seeds. You know, that he might be a bridge between God and man, but it costs him his life. The measure of that cost is revealed in this passage, and it begins with a terrifying darkness. About the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. A terrifying supernatural darkness fell upon all the land. Not just Calvary, not just Jerusalem, but the whole world. God stepped in. You know, in the ordinary course of things, nature, light always banished darkness. But here at, here at Calvary, darkness overpowered the light. The sins of the world now rest on the shoulders of one who needs no sin. Here, God gives you a picture of the light of the world about to leave the world. But God stepped in and stopped the sun from shining in the middle of the day. You know, the, the darkness symbolized the withdrawal of the light of God presence from the sinner. Christ hung on the cross as the sinner, the sinner who was becoming sin for us. I went to Carfag Cabin and went deep underground. And then in the course of that, they would turn off the light. And in underground, there are absolutely no light. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. You know, it is terrible. It is scary, even though you know it. It is scary. You know, the light of the world. As you know, I hear God saying, you know, right. The light is shut out. You know, right. Calvary is. You know. Excuse me. Yeah. At Calvary, God demonstrated that Christ was definitely God's son. You know, the very God who created light and sun and the laws of nature stepped in and blanketed the, Lord, the world with darkness so that all might know that the one dying on the center cross was none other than his beloved son. And this darkness also pictures the blackness of our sin. You know, we were separated from God by the darkness of our sin. Well, now in Christ Jesus, Jesus has separated us from our sin. And lastly, this picture is the darkness of sin. Sin which demands darkness to carry on its act and leads to the most terrible darkness of all. 
dead. John wrote said, and this is the condemnation, the light come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. In Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but to give of God eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In this darkness, people are separated and isolated. Jesus Christ is all alone and feel that God's spirit has left them. And it invoked this loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus chose to allow himself to be beaten and broken and crucified and slaughtered as a lamb by those he came to love and save. He also chose to have all our sins placed upon him. Now because all our sins were placed on Jesus, God the Father had to turn his face away from him. When that happened, Jesus sensed that God's holiness had left him. He had been delivered into the hands of sin and death. He would made he would have been made sin and had to die. The pain and agony of this moment cannot be adequately described. The physical pain of being tortured on the cross, the emotional pain of being separated from family and friends, but most of all, the spiritual pain of separation from God. God and the Son were separated. They had been turning together, and now at this point in time, they were separate. And that invoked the cry from Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I don't have any illustration to bring this home to you, but I would ask you to put yourself in Jesus' position, and your lifeline has just left you. David wrote in Psalm 22 of a painful separation from God at a time of great trouble. More than a thousand years later, Jesus used those same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David wrote in verse 3 of Psalms, you know, thou art holy. Jesus had become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Corinthians, the writer said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cost of our sin is revealed at Calvary. You know, I wanted today to connect, to connect myself to Calvary. So that every time that I sin, I will remember Calvary. You know, sometimes we forget that. You know, we sin and don't worry about it. I had this story, and I will close. Growing up as young men, uh, we didn't have any fruit trees in our neighborhood. So we would go out into the other people's neighborhood in the dark and pick their peaches, their apples, you know, their cherries, their grapes. 
It was wrong. It was legal. It was a sin. But, but God was far away from our mind. Sin cost. If we remember the sin, that little sin cost put Jesus on the cross. So each and every time that we sin, it brings us to our hearts and our minds that Jesus is on the cross again. And I'm putting them there. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm saying good evening and no, no microphone. One more thing. I can see. All right, all right. Good evening, brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's, it's great to be part of uh, this preaching team this evening. It's great to be part of uh, Friendship Community Bible Church, a member uh, of this church, so it's such a blessing to be here. Um, I am going to start off. We're we're gonna we're gonna read uh, John, chapter nineteen, and only one verse. But let me let me start off with this. You know, in a big city and a, a busy city like Houston, along any major freeway, any major thoroughfare, any any side streets, you are bound to see a simple sign stating the obvious, men at work. Am I right about it? Men at work. When we look up to Calvary's cross, we see a man at work. The ultimate and one and only God-man. Completing his work, hanging there in agony, on the verge of certain death, finishing his work for all mankind. He has a request, and I say a reasonable request, as he's hanging on that cross. And the request is this, I am thirsty. I am thirsty, I thirst. And that's what John chapter 19, verse 28 is all about. And I'm going to read it. And it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Jesus, just like any of us, just like any other man in his humanity, completing his work, that culminates on the cross would reasonably crave a drink. Amen? A refreshing drink to somehow lessen the suffering on the cross. And also a request, a request 
to satisfy his thirst as even foretold by the prophets centuries earlier. So let me remind you just for a minute, what was the work leading up to this cry on the cross? So let's just take a, a few milestone looks at his work leading up to the cross. For staying true to the work that the Father had sent him to do, he was condemned to death on the cross. John chapter 18, verses 39 and 40 says, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, he was attempting, he was, he was asserting Jesus' innocence to the people. And he says, But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? The people cried out saying, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was known to be a criminal. Yet the crowd says, no, not this man. Release Barabbas. Lord, Lord. Another milestone I want to remind you of as he was on his way to the cross. Jesus, as he's speaking with his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, in a moment of self-disclosure regarding the things to come, he says, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. That's what Christ told him. That's referring to me, and I'm fulfilling it. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the fact that Jesus would be positioned on the cross between two criminals. Centuries ago, that was mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53. So in the midst of the work in Samaria, Another milestone. He's working in the ministry in Samaria. The disciples tried to encourage Jesus, eat, Rabbi, you need to eat. And in John chapter 4, verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, they were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Then Jesus, being Jesus, said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There's that word again, work. He came to do something. He came to accomplish something, even on that cross. Jesus, in prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, he plainly talks about the work and the completion of the work. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, know you, 
the, on, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished what? The work which you have given me to do. So here we have Jesus, all wrapped up in the work. And you know, in, in the Old Testament, he was described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Truly, truly a man at work. A man who endear, endured and yet completed all that the Father had sent him to achieve. Completing the work. As Lewis turns the page, which brings us back to the text. Verse 28 again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. What a simple request from the cross. I'm thirsty. All that he's gone through. There, you know, there is this great tension between the majesty of the deity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a tension there. It's almost too hard to wrap your brain around. Suffering Savior. You know, our Savior had lost much blood on his way to the cross after being whipped, beaten, and then a crown of thorns. Of course he'd have lost a lot of blood. And then the nervous tension of this moment in time, a moment unparalleled in the annals of time, space, and history. The humanity of the ultimate one and only God suffering. His exposure to the weather and all of its elements on his way to the cross. He shouts what anybody would shout after enduring all of this, never losing sight of his work, approaching the end of his work and, might I say, the end of his life. He cries out, I'm thirsty. I need a drink. Listen, let me give you a praise alert here. Y'all can praise on this. Y'all can praise on this. You see, he thirsted on the cross that we never have to thirst. Now, now you got to think about that a minute. To quote somebody I love very much, I got Bible on that too. Didn't he tell a Samaritan woman he accounted at the well in the town of Sukkar, John chapter 4, verse 10, if you know the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and what would he give you? He would give, would have given you living water. Now we can put a praise right there. He will give you living water, not just for one drink, but for eternity. That's what that's all about. So there is a messianic prophecy in these words. And prophecy is fulfilled in these words. Psalm 22, 
Psalm 69, prophecy, hundreds of years, decades. But Christ Jesus is the man at the end of his earthly work, suffering and dying on the cross, and simply asked for a thirst-quenching drink, a simple request from the cross. Saints, I have a lingering question for you, for your consideration as I prepare to take my seat. The question that I would like to leave on your minds tonight is, what drink do you have fit for a king? What drink do you have fit for a king? You know, the Apostle Paul spoke of his life being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith. That's what Paul said. His life was being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith. Philippians chapter 2. So how do we satisfy the simple request that our Christian faith requires? I got a good one for you. Here's a good start from the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. And here it is. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Here's a final thought as I take my seat. Think about your professional life. What would your work history look like? I'm talking about your professional life, how you earn your money. What would your work history look like? How many people could you get to write you a letter of recommendation? Based on this crowd, I'm sure as many. We got a sharp congregation, but that's another story. Now, place that same scrutiny, that same importance of your work history regarding the things of God, regarding God's agenda. How do they, how do they compare? I'm going to leave with that. I hope you've been blessed tonight. Bless the Lord.
gives me strength will never lose its power. Hallelujah. Ah, I got to calm down around here, y'all. Woo! I will speak to you from John 19 and 30. Uh, and the word of God said, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear God, we love you. God, we are so grateful for your presence here, God. And we are grateful for the blood that you have shed for us that is from everlasting to everlasting. It will never lose its power. And God, right now we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Father, decrease me and fill me with your spirit that only what you once said will be said. Be glorified in this empty vessel, God. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, here in John 19, we have been here a little bit already throughout my brothers that have already spoken. And this is, the, John 19 has a lot of tragedy. There, there, there's a lot of tragedy in it. When you think about everything that was going on, there are travesties happening. Jesus Christ, the creator, sustainer, and maker of everything, is now stripped, naked, bleeding, beaten, spit on, and dying on a cross on a hill that he built. He made everything. The hill and the wood that they have him strung up to, he created it. That's his wood, his dirt, his hill, his people. But when we get to this saying, even though there's tragedy all around, this saying is not a saying of tragedy. This is a saying of triumph. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, but I've been walking with him for a little while, long enough to know that God can take my greatest tragedy and turn it into my highest triumph. He majors in turning tragedy into triumph. And, and that's what we have here. That's what we have here. The precision of God's word is so unique. God, Jesus is dying on a cross. And through everything that he's thinking about, everything that he's going through, he remembers, to, he has to say now, I thirst. Because there's an, there's an obscure scripture back in Psalm 69 where, where he says in Psalm 69, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, that seems like a small scripture, but, 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 but the totality of Jesus' sacrifice meant everything that was predicted from start to finish had to be achieved in order for him to say, it is finished. That might be small to you, but eternity weighed on that simple request. And what they gave him to drink, he had to say, I thirst. 
He, he had to say it, and he had to, he had to receive that vinegar. The word that is used in most um, renditions of this is tetelestai. Now, tetelestai is a Greek word, and it encompasses, it's, it's one word, and it encompasses three words. Now, I'm going to say it's one word, but it encompasses three words. So, the same word tetelestai uh, uh, can be translated as it is finished. It's what they used when they canceled a debt. We had a debt that we could not pay. There was no way we could pay it. I've heard folks say it should have been me on that cross. No, it couldn't have been you on that cross because you couldn't pay the price. It wouldn't matter if you was on the cross. You are not without sin. You are not without blemish. You could not be the Lamb of God. You couldn't accomplish it. It had to be Christ. We are looking at one word that encompasses three words. It, it also has been rendered as, 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 as um, paid in full. So, so the, the one word encompasses the three words the same way that in eternity past, three in the Godhead... They, they, they got together, and at some point, they, they, before the foundations of the world, they had to make a decision because they knew three things. that if, if we make them, they will sin, and if they sin, we will have to redeem them. And all of that had to be established by the Godhead, three in one, before God ever stepped out into nothing and spoke the words, let there be. It was already accomplished. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. Now, what was finished? Jesus did not say, I am finished. Because if he said, I am finished, we would all be on our way to hell. Jesus said, it is finished. The atonement for sin is finished. Your freedom from Satan is finished. Your forgiveness is finished. Your sealing for eternity is finished. You don't have to pay anymore for your sins. And if you go to Hebrews 10, it tells you that Christ offered sin once for all time. And he sat down. Don't miss that. He sat down. If you know anything about the building of the temple and the construction of the temple, there was only one seat, and it was the mercy seat. There was only one seat, and the mercy seat sat between the cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which lets us know nobody was supposed to sit there. Now, the priest, they would come in year after year playing musical chairs. Because they would always have to offer the sacrifice, check the sacrifice, make sure it's without blemish, kill the sacrifice, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins. And then the next year, they got to grab the sacrifice, inspect the sacrifice, kill the sacrifice, sprinkle on the altar, sprinkle on the mercy seat, and then go out again. And then the next year, they had to go look at the sacrifice, make sure it's pure, cut the sacrifice, split the sacrifice, throw it and sprinkle the blood on them over and over again. But our God, once and for all time, 
completed all the work of the temple. And and and, and it was and and the, the, the interesting thing about those three, there are th- there are four gospels. Only three mention this. Only three. Because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses is all it takes for a thing to be established. All of this stuff works together. So so Mark's gospel does not mention the word to tell us that. And the reason why it doesn't is because Mark focuses on what it meant. Mark tells us that when Christ gave up his spirit, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. Now this veil ain't no ordinary veil. This veil is some 60 feet wide and 30 feet high. Ain't no man gonna rip that veil. God ripped the veil because nothing that had to happen behind for atonement was left. Jesus Christ paid it all, finished it, finished it. So whatever you're going through, no matter where you are in your life right now, know that it is finished. Your destiny is finished. It may be hard right now, but your forever is finished. Jesus once and for all saved, sanctified, and sealed you. And you'll see him on the other side because it is finished. And the doors of the church are open. Amen, amen, amen. And thank God for the opportunity to come and stand before the people of God with such a great group of brothers um, with the opportunity to close out tonight. And I'll be reading from Luke, the 23rd chapter, verse number 46. Luke 23, verse 46. And it reads, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus called out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I just want to share with you all tonight as a subject or a topic for this message, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. For over 37 years, Jim McKay made this quote extremely popular on the ABC wide world of sports. This saying typically uh, describes the human drama of athletic competition. In other words, what it was doing is just letting people show their expressions as to how they felt when they won or if they lost. In in the mid-1980s, Larry Holmes was in a fight with uh, Michael Spinks and during that fight with Michael Spinks, um, Larry lost the fight. He took a lot of beating. He, he, was, beat, he was beaten. He was bruised. Uh, he had sweat. He had a little blood coming from him. He was, he, was, he was really beat pretty bad by Michael Spinks. 
And during the post-fight interview, they interviewed Larry and they asked him questions about the fight. And his responses were, you know, I took the best shots that I could take. You know, I thought I was really winning the fight during the first five rounds of the fight. You know, I, I really gave it my best. And what Larry was doing, he was actually describing what it felt like to have the agony of defeat. But not like Jesus. When Jesus cried out, he cried out in a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now this was after he had been taken by the Romans who were experts in the area of execution. He had to endure some of the most hideous treatment that anyone had to deal with. I don't know if any human being could have taken all that Jesus took and still had the spirit to call out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, they, they did a lot of things to him. They beat him. They, they spat on him. They nailed his hands to the cross. They, they did a lot of things. They pierced him in his side. They treated him really, really, really bad. But unlike Larry Holmes, he cried out with a loud voice. And some may think that when he cried out in a loud voice, it was a cry of agony. No, it wasn't a cry of agony. It was a cry of victory. Because he knew that he had, he had victory over everything that was stopping us from being what he wanted us to be. You ask me, how, how in the world is what Jesus went through? How is this the victory? How is, not, how is this not the agony of how is victory? How is this victory? Psalms 103 tells us, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, I don't know if you know anything about geography, but if you go east, you'll never get to the west. You're just going to constantly be going east, constantly going east. So he's telling us that our sins were so far removed by him going through what he went through that we didn't have to worry about that anymore. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, we are set free from the law of sin and death. In other words, no more condemnation. We don't have to worry about that. So you ask the question, how is this the, the, the thrill of victory? It's because he allowed us to get away from some things that if he had not gone through what he went through, we wouldn't be here today. And it doesn't stop there. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's how it's the thrill of victory and not the agony of defeat. Romans 4, 14, 17, the kingdom of God is one of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So you ask me how this is the thrill of victory and not the agony of defeat? It's because all that Jesus went through, everything that was shared on tonight, it let us know that we don't have to stay where we are any longer. We can rest on the fact that Jesus has given us the perfect example of how to express ourselves even when we've been beaten, battered, and bruised. 
even when all hell is broken loose in our lives, he's given us a perfect example of how to show the thrill of victory and not the agony of defeat. I don't know what why world of sports was talking about it other than just sports but I'm telling you as far as Jesus Christ is concerned anytime you dealing with something just think about Jesus and what he went through and all that he endured so that we can stand here today and say the thrill of victory and not the agony of defeat and I know I, I say Jonathan Nelson Jonathan Nelson he couldn't have phrased it better when he wrote the words I've got evidence, I've got confidence. I'm a conqueror, I know that I win. I know who I am. God wrote it in his plan. So no matter what you might be going through in life tonight, understand you have the victory in Jesus Christ. You ought to tell somebody when they're going through some struggles in their lives, Jesus has already given us the example of the thrill of victory and not the agony of defeat. I thank God today for Jesus, for allowing us to have this privilege to say to a dying world, there is a reality in serving a true and risen Savior. Father, I commit my spirit unto you. Thank God. Bless the Lord in the house. What a mighty, mighty, mighty word. Stand on your feet and give God.